Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me today is Dr. Marcy Lake. She is in Portland, Oregon. She's a faculty member of the Kaiser Permanente Family Medicine Residency Program, and today we're going to talk about an interesting part of the body, an interesting uh, area, which maybe we don't think about a lot when things are going well, but when they go poorly, it can be a big issue, and that is the pituitary, pituitary adenomas, and those issues. I know you wrote an article in the American Family Physician a few years back about pituitary adenomas. It's very interesting, and first of all, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having me. My first question is the role of the pituitary. Just when when things are working well, um, what is it that the pituitary controls and does for us? Yeah, so as you had mentioned, the pituitary does a lot. I mean, you could argue that it has a role in almost every functioning of the body, as does the endocrine system as a whole. Um, the pituitary specifically, as mentioned in the article, you know, you come up with issues with it having to do with hormonal dysregulation, whether that's hypersecretion or hyposecretion, um, can present in, in multiple symptoms. So really it has a large role in the entire functioning of the body. And when you look at it, I mean, we're talking about some of the, like you say, the major issues associated with it. But um, I guess what we talk about a lot are, are prolactinomas. Um, certainly that's when, when there is a concern, or at least we start to see some symptoms of that. What happens in a prolactinoma? What, what, what does it affect? What hormones? What's going on there? Yeah, so prolactinomas are definitely the most common type of pituitary adenomas. There's um, several types of pituitary adenomas, and prolactinomas being the most common. Um, and when prolactinomas can present similar to other pituitary adenomas, where they can present with symptoms from mass effect from the growing pituitary, which can be headaches or changes in visual symptoms from compression of the optic nerve. Um, and then they also can present in hormonal symptoms. That's one of the reasons why I chose this topic. The, the patient that I saw that inspired this topic was a, a middle-aged gentleman who presented with erectile dysfunction and ended up having a macro prolactinoma. And I thought that was interesting because we see so many common complaints that we see as family medicine doctors like erectile dysfunction, decreased libido, fatigue, headaches can be from a pituitary adenoma. And again, the most common being the, the prolactinoma. So when that case, when that individual presented himself, I mean, we don't always see things. I mean, I know one of the things you might see with a, if it's a tumor, for instance, is you might see the bitemporal hemianopsia or, or something like that, a headache, and that might cue you in, or at least to get an MRI or something. But when, when those things happen, again, we don't really think about it right away, but it starts you thinking. Right, Exactly. Um, and, and this patient in particular, you know, what, didn't have any of the other symptoms or the other diagnoses that could otherwise explain his erectile dysfunction. He was healthy, um, you know, mid-30s, didn't have diabetes, wasn't on any hypertension medications that were used to seeing that. So it inspired me to do a, a basic endocrine workup, and his uh, prolactin came up extremely elevated, I think in the range of 400, 450. You know, you bring up a really interesting point, too, for those of us uh, as family docs, primary care. You know, we'll see patients with erectile dysfunction. It's very easy to treat them now with the medications we have. Maybe not even do a major workup or even a minor workup, but it's so important because it's a tip that there are so many other things. You mentioned diabetes. It could be cardiovascular issues, but it could all the way get to the point where, where there there could be a tumor or anything else. We really just can't treat uh, without suspecting other concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, I think that's one of the importance of this topic to primary care is we're often the ones to see those kind of nonspecific symptoms like headache, fatigue, you know, changes in menstrual cycle, 
Um, and like you said, it could be caused by a lot of things. And, you know, pituitary adenomas certainly are not the most common cause of those things, but it exists as a diagnosis. And, and to miss it only leads to greater problems. Well, and, you know, I, I, I'm always one of these people who enjoys reading different articles and journals. The American Family Physician in particular is always good because, at least in my eyes, it does take a basic look at things that we might see, but it really gets you thinking, too, because if you read the articles in detail, preparing the article prior to interviewing you, you know, you go, you go, oh, yeah, I, I, I forgot about that. I haven't thought about that lately. I'm glad I read it. And I think that's what we consistently need to do. And I want to address that. I know when you wrote this, uh, you were with the U.S. Navy. Now you're, you're in practice teaching residents. How important is the role of reading? Because we have a lot of uh, young doctors listen to this program as well. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. I think more so in, in family medicine than, than perhaps any other specialties because we are expected to know at least some about just about everything. Um, you know, and that's one of the reasons I personally chose family medicine is I really like that challenge because I think the more specialized you get, you know, the less material there is to know, and you have to know that material really well, but there's less of it. And the volume of material that family medicine doctors have to know can, can really be overwhelming. I think reading constantly, and for me personally, teaching also inspires me to read more often. Um, really can't be underestimated the importance of that. Yeah, one of my one of my faculty members, we, we talk about that often, and what he was saying is that one of the nice things about family medicine and teaching, at least, is you're constantly discussing things, so if you read it, it becomes real. If it becomes real, it's easier to remember because you're also consistently looking things up and double checking which i think is another great way to to keep up because you're it, it's so much easier now than when i first started where you might be pulling out a textbook or whatever you can just go online yeah. and you can find something quick right having recently moved i only recently got rid of all my medical school textbooks so i'm old enough to be in that generation too it's hard to separate yourself from but you begin to realize i know at least i keep a lot of my old ones around not only are they old but I say, gee, nobody ever looks at them, and I think, well, why would they? I mean, why would you go into all that trouble at this point? Right. It's way way easier to look online. If you were going to summarize um, the, the warning signs, things we should be concerned about as far as the pituitary, if something was going wrong, a lot, a lot of things, but what are some of the symptoms that could alert us to issues? Um, I think there's probably a constellation of a couple of the symptoms that would be the most common for any of the types of pituitary adenomas. And those would be change in sexual function. So whether that's a, a discrete change in libido, um, that also goes along with uh, premenopausal women having a discrete change in their menstrual cycle without another explanation. Fatigue, even though we get that complaint a lot, um, fatigue accompanied with that change in menstrual cycle, and a headache would probably be the ones that would be the most consistent that would cue you into doing maybe a larger workup for an endocrine etiology, specifically pituitary adenoma. When you start with the basic studies, initially is it just a CM, CBC and a basic metabolic panel, and then you move from there? Is that your usual approach? Um, usually I add a TSH in that as well as a prolactin. You know, there are some expert evidence that say that anytime you're considering a hormonal or an endocrine dysfunction, you should add a prolactin um, just because that's going to be the test that's going to have the greatest yield. Um, even if it's not specifically a prolactinoma, some prolactin is very commonly elevated in other types of pituitary adenoma. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. We're talking about the pituitary, the pituitary adenomas, and um, we're also speaking with Dr. Marcy Lake. She's joining us from Portland, Oregon, uh, where she works as a member of the faculty and residency program, Kaiser Permanetti, out there. And 
Uh, we're a pleasure to have her with us. And I've asked you a lot of questions on specific areas, but what would you like to bring up that you think is important as you were thinking about doing this show uh, that you thought you'd want to share with other physicians? Just um, increasing your index of suspicion of a pituitary adenoma when you get the common symptoms that we get in family medicine, um, to not necessarily disregard them or assume it's, you know, depression or something that could also explain all those symptoms, um, but to kind of keep it on your radar. You know, we mentioned briefly some of the initial lab workup, but one, the other reason why I wanted to write this article is I personally find the, the workup of endocrine abnormalities, the labs and the understanding of the labs to be one of the more challenging things in primary care. Um, so having a concise table that explains what the labs are, what's abnormal and normal, and just some clinical pearls about specific sensitivities, specificities of it, um, was really important for me to have at hand. Um, and that's another thing I wanted to do when I wrote this article. Yeah, that's one of the nice things. You write an article, you obviously always have you not only a memory of your work, but the results of your work as well to look at. And I think that's important, too. Tell me, talk a little bit about treatment. Uh, for instance, the dopamine agonists. A lot of people don't think about these medications, but uh, unless we're thinking about you know various neurologic conditions here or there, but they're a very important role when you're talking about prolactinomas. Yeah, sure. So in prolactinomas, the dopamine agonists are definitely the treatment of choice. Most of the time, you're involving your endocrine um, specialist as well. Sometimes primary care will treat prolactinomas alone just because they are so receptive to the dopamine agonists, bromocryptine and carbinolide being, being the most common ones used. But a lot of times you do want to seek your colleague's um, expert opinion when managing it as far as when to come off it, some of the side effects to manage. And especially a lot of us family medicine doctors are still doing um, pregnancy and prenatal care. And it's important at that time, too, to involve endocrine specialists. That's an interesting point where it crosses over, and I wanted to ask you, too, uh, about the whole issue of amenorrhea, irregular menstrual cycles, I guess, or uh, what they were calling dysfunctional uterine bleeding, those types of things. Um, now abnormal uterine bleeding. What, what is the role of hormones there from your perspective as you would summarize the things we should know? Um, as far as the role of hormones there, I think in the initial evaluation in the lab workup, I think most of us, when we have a woman that is complaining of menstrual symptoms, most primary care physicians will do the initial workup and the exam for that. So I think the importance of understanding what those lab workups mean, whether it's something common like thyroid dysfunction, um, something middle of the road like a prolactinoma, and then other abnormalities. There are rare pituitary tumors that secrete FSH and LH. Um, but just being able to understand the labs that, that you're getting and what they mean um, and being able to recognize when that's something that you can manage yourself or when it, it requires a specialty involvement. I think one of the things I enjoyed about your article and reading it, too, was when you talked about that, I, you know, if you have the medical school perspective, everything kind of has equal footing. You're like, oh, that's an FSH secreting tumor. That's LH. That's just, you, you made that point clear that, you know, that we really don't see that that often certainly can occur. But you kind of wrote about the things that occur commonly because if you're going to get that specific and start to look in this area, it at least gives you something to hold on to and kind of have a, a, a point to center on at least. Yeah, and when you get to the more, you know, like the growth hormone secreting adenomas and um, even the cortisol secreting ones, the, the treatment of choice is really surgical resection. Um, so those are far less common for primary care physicians to really manage. It's a question that comes up all the time, and I kind of laugh when I talk to my residents about, uh, 
you know, what we do as family doctors, I always say, well, if you're going to take the boards, you know, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. But in reality, you know, we have the help of our endocrinologists, we have the help of surgeons. And you brought up the point, um, some of these things, it's great to play detective and certainly you can save someone's life literally by making a crucial diagnosis. But there's nothing wrong with getting assistance at a certain point too. Yes, absolutely. And when you do refer, um, as far as teaching your residents or just for doctors out there, what's the difference between, you know, delegating and getting help and abdicating and how you kind of maintain uh, the relationship with your patients? What are some of the tips you suggest? Um, Yeah, so I like to, and I think it's a a good role for family medicine doctors to be a good referee. So to not, you know, see something, oh, this is out of my league, I've, you know, I've got to refer, I've got to refer, I've got to refer, because um, I think that that makes family medicine lose credibility, and, and personally, if you're within a, a system, it makes you lose credibility as well. So having the knowledge, like we were talking about, reading up on things and knowing so that when that specialist sees it, most of the workup is done, and you have a good differential going. And so then after that patient sees the specialist, they can come back to you, and you already have an understanding of what you thought the diagnosis was and what the treatment was going to be. So you're already one up for that follow-up care. So I think it's very important in family medicine to to do as much workup as you can prior to seeking the specialty care. I think that's a great point you bring up. I know a lot of times what what I'll try to do is let's get at least some of these initial studies Let's show the specialist we know what's going on. Sometimes, too, there's a period of time where you know they may not get an appointment and you can get a heck of a lot done. In fact, there's been times where I've I've done a workup and I'm like, well, I've got this much back. I'm just going to call at this point and do a curbside consult with this doctor. You know, they're not, you know, like you said, you work with them closely. They're not going to be that upset. And you can sometimes save the person an additional visit because you've more or less figured it out by the time they could have gotten that appointment. Yes, Absolutely. Is there anything else you want to bring up that we haven't talked about uh, you know, to leave with the listening audience that you think is important? I mean, the only other thing we kind of mentioned is primary care sees a lot of the common symptoms, um, but also the incidental OMA, as, the, as they call it. We frequently order MRIs or, or get results of a CT scan, and we're usually the first one to get this result that says, oh, they may have an incidental pituitary adenoma. So I think it's important to understand what needs to intervene on that and what you can potentially wait. And again, as we talked about, what needs to be referred, but just not forgetting the, the incidental finding because those are very common in pituitary adenomas as well. Dr. Marcy Lake, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your insights on primary care today. You're welcome. Thanks again for having me. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed part of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash primary care today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more on the series. Thank you for listening.